0: You know, this is a national issue, and I thought the government needs to actually step in.
1: This is Future Cities, the series that brings together some of the people exploring and shaping what our cities could be like in the future. I'm Professor Christoph Lindner, Dean of the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment at UCL. And in this first series, we're looking at the future of London, where I'm speaking to you from here at UCL. London's leading multidisciplinary university, right in the heart of the city, with the British Museum, the green squares of Bloomsbury, and the bustle of Tottenham Court Road all on our doorstep. Episode two is about gentrification and marginalization, because we live in a city of paradox, a paradox where gentrification, creates new energies, vibes, and momentum in the city, but also marginalizes and excludes people. So helping me tackle this issue is Hannah Sender, a PhD candidate and research fellow at the UCL Institute of Global Prosperity, and Tual Khan, a housing solicitor at the UCL Integrated Legal Advice Clinic. And let's start off by dealing with our keyword gentrification. What do we mean by gentrification? And as it happens, this is a term that was coined right here at UCL by the urban sociologist Ruth Glass in a book called London Aspects of Change back in 1964. So the term gentrification has been around for over 50 years, and it's grown in popularity and usage Right across uh, disciplines in the humanities, social sciences, and art and design fields. But what does it mean? And there are many ways of defining it, and lots of competing understandings. But I think, in the in the broadest, simplest terms, gentrification involves the involuntary displacement of an existing resident community by a more affluent or socioeconomically privileged group. But of course, since it was first coined in 1964, cities have changed a great deal. The way that cities are designed and planned has changed a great deal. And today we talk of lots of flavors and variations of gentrification. There's super gentrification, hyper gentrification, eco gentrification, techno gentrification, and I'm sure many other forms of it. And we're here today to think about the future of gentrification in a global city like London. And so, Hannah and Toal, do you have any initial thoughts on what gentrification means to you?
2: Actually, I wanted to pick up on something that you said just then, Christoph, about displacement. Uh, it's something that is really interesting to me. And I think that displacement can take many different forms. So um, something that I've been talking with young people about is feeling as though you're being displaced without actually being physically relocated and i imagine that that's something that might have come up in to work i was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that
0: yes i think in my area of work um i think if you say the word gentrification is obviously very loaded um and it's a term that obviously is a, a pejorative i feel with, with my clients and, and myself working in the sector also we're based in stratford and obviously i think it's known nationally with, with the olympics in 2012 I mean, it has brought benefits, if you like, in terms of the Olympic site and and the park and and new flats being built. But what it also led is as has led to increased rents. It's led to a sense that the local community have been ignored, really, um, in terms of what amenities should should be there for the community. So yeah, I think it's definitely a very loaded
1: word um, and conjures up lots of lots of meanings and emotions for for my clients. Would it be fair to say that gentrification is a word that evokes? one of the greatest tensions running through a city like London, which is the tension between um, a vision of London as a bright, dynamic, prosperous city, plugged into the flows and luxuries of global capital, and on the other side, a view of London as a place of widening gap between rich and poor, a place that's unaffordable, unwelcoming, and in many ways, kind of hostile and even environmentally dangerous to uh, to human life. And that, of course, I'm I'm offering two extreme uh, versions there. But I wonder, is gentrification something that straddles that spectrum of versions of London?
0: I think it depends on who you're asking the question to, really. I think if he was to ask on a kind of uh, neutral level, we're going to redirect this 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 area, which you know predominantly normally is, is a low income socioeconomic level, or we're going to improve it by, you know, improving the flats, quality of accommodation, amenities, and also in a level, yes, it's a positive thing. But I feel the tension is obviously, you know, who are the main stakeholders in this. So if it was something that's attainable for all, especially those who were, live who have lived in, in communities in the areas for, for generations, then yes, I'll say it's good for all. But I think it's more there's always unfortunate winners and losers. Now, I'm not sure maybe this is just a reflection of you know, the market forces we live in. But yes, of course, there's always tension. And, and this, this is a question that's been going on for 21st years, um, not just in London, but across the world. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think, unfortunately, it's not an easy answer to or solution because I have seen in my work the benefits as well of, of should we say, redevelopment, um, but also you know those who, have, who are who are sort of the losers, if you like. Could you talk a little
1: bit about some of the benefits that you've observed?
0: From my work in, in Stratford, I would say, Obviously, the, the, the Olympic Park, um, I think before before the Olympics, I think Stratford or Newham, you know, Newham is one of the most deprived boroughs in the country. And I think what the Olympics has done, it, it has shown a light on it, you know. So, you know, when it was announced, the Olympics, uh, London has won the, the, the bid, focus turned to, to Newham and Stratford. So, yes, it has benefits in terms of putting it on the map. I mean, also with the local football team moving into it as well. Um, there's obviously outreach work with West Ham United um, and also with developers in the area so I I personally know someone that lives in in the East Village um, block and I've personally visited it and it's you know very pretty Um, it looks easy on the eye it's led to accommodation for single people those who were not able to afford it before so what has happened is I think it's part of the development there's an allocation for um, affordable rent quote unquote properties but what the converse that has met is actually, it's not actually affordable for, for most of my clients because these tenancies are still market rent, still very limited security. If you look behind the veneers, so I think on the face of it, it looks very, you know, you can see the benefits, but I think if you, you scratch the surface, then you see the kind of problems.
2: Yeah, because I think that housing ultimately is the deciding factor here. There are a lot of amazing initiatives that are happening in East London uh, that probably wouldn't have happened without the Olympics and the kind of um, regeneration after that. But ultimately, you know, I heard that the new kind of East Bank area will become like the the new South Bank and, you know, see so many shiny images and those kind of uh, mock-up visions of what the area is going to look like. And you just think that's really going to spell doom for a lot of people who won't be able to afford to stay there and rising rents rising house prices that's going to be the deciding factor I think for a lot of people you know even if transport links are improved you know or shopping facilities are improved and maybe there's a bit of job creation is it going to be enough for people to afford those rents probably not and that's the scary thing I think.
1: So it's interesting, Hannah, that you reference those shiny images. And so many neighborhoods in London uh, have those shiny development images showing renderings of the apartments and the com- and the shopping and restaurant amenities that are coming to the neighborhood. And of course, they're designed to be aspirational. They're designed to seduce us. They're designed to... Um, Um, bring us on board with the future vision of the neighborhood. But at the same time, we tend to also recognize what those images are um, portending, right? We tend to recognize um, the way that those slick, futuristic, impossibly clean luxury apartments what they actually mean for the local neighborhood. And so in a way, they become harbingers of, uh, of gentrification. And I'm wondering if you've encountered in your um, work with local communities, people responding to all of that visual hype about future development.
2: That's a really good question. Um, I think the example that strikes me first is, funnily enough, in Camden, where the Institute for Global Prosperity has been working recently. I've been working with young people, kind of uh, mid to late adolescents, and a lot of them live around the HS2 area. Uh, And, you know, there's been obviously a huge amount of redevelopment and relocation as a result of uh, the HS2 development, but also there's been kind of improvement in um, housing stock and some kind of new shiny um, buildings are literally being... Uh, built. And I say that a lot of the young people that I've spoken to feel quite conflicted about these images, but also what they're, you know, physically seeing uh, being built in their areas. They don't feel as though these buildings are for them. They don't anticipate being able to stay in Camden um, for much longer. And they they have a sense that they're going to have to move out and that they won't be able to afford to live in these these places. But I think it has a wider, wider impact on them too because it also affects how they live day to day, you know, the places they go to, how they feel they can dress, how many people they feel they can meet, you know, in a public space, on the street, whether they feel like they're being watched. You know, it comes with all of these changes to their lived environments. And I think that they try to kind of navigate that in their day-to-day lives. But I would say in the long term, they feel as though they're being pushed out.
1: So that's kind of a gloomy picture that you're painting there, Hannah. This this sort of aura of impending doom uh, hanging uh, over the neighborhood where I suppose home is not secure. That's ultimately what, what you're saying, that that home is not secure. And Tuol, in the communities that you work with, do you have uh, other specific examples of how people are affected by gentrification? Is it similar in East London as to what Hannah's describing in Camden?
0: Yeah, it yeah, is actually very common. Um, I just came to mind, actually, I mean, in terms of case I was working on many years ago, I mean, there's this estate called Carpenters Estate, um, which is right, bang, right, right by the Olympic site, and it's been earmarked for his redevelopment for five, six years, and actually I was assisting a client who was a council tenant, has been there for many, many years, and receive a letter and form process, that you know, this area will be redeveloped and we'll have to rehouse you. It was just, uh, and it's still so politically sort of loaded, and it's so controversial, and not a single person, the client or anyone else said to me that this is a good thing or yes, and I'm, I'm happy because it's all a case of what about me? we just you're just moving, you're redeveloping this area, putting in you know really expensive flats, and, and you're, you're forgetting about us and putting us somewhere else in an undesirable part of New So, I think the point you made about the sort of visual hype, I mean, that's quite um, interesting term. And yeah, I feel it was just when we talk about potential properties that clients can maybe look to live in and what's affordable and they know about you know developments in the area they know about the east village they know about Carpenters in the state but it's just a case of well it's not it's not even worth talking about because they know it's not for them and this is fear long term that you know where am I going to go and from a housing point of view you know you've seen the the massive cuts from the government in in, in social welfare in in terms of housing I mean I think the bigger issues is to do with that it's to do with the lack of not building affordable social housing the government has basically allowed or, or basically trying to say look it's the private developers, they, they're, here, that's going to, they're going to fill the gap, which, you know, it's clearly there's a bigger issue. So I feel, you know, this is a national issue. And I feel the government needs to actually step in because the way it's going, London is going to be a you know, city for just a very, very few, just, just for the rich.
1: Yeah, you make a very important point there. And when both you and Hannah were speaking, it made me wonder, uh, who is London for? So the kind of future trajectory that we're currently on um who will London be available and accessible to in the coming decades? And Tool, you're, you're making a quite um, alarming point that more and more London is designed for and um, accessible to the wealthy at the expense potentially of the poor and the less privileged. All of this makes me want to turn to something that London is internationally infamous for, which is the phenomenon of zombie housing and ghost mansions. So London is not alone in this, but it's one of the big global cities where increasingly property is being bought as an investment, but not inhabited. It's not a place where people live. And um, we can walk in different neighborhoods in London and probably recognize and point out those areas, those developments, that are almost custom designed from the beginning to become zombie housing and ghost mansions. Have you observed this phenomenon in the areas where you work?
2: Yes, I have observed it, but I think I've observed it through the eyes of the young people that I work with. One of the uh, young women that I work with, her father is a cab driver, and he sometimes takes her to school and they drive um, along a street close to Regent's Park. And they go past a particular house and they have a joke, which is that they one day will buy that house and live there. And we asked uh, this young woman, oh, do you know who lives there now? And she said, oh, I you know, I do happen to know that the person who owns the house, they, they don't live there um, because they know the maid and the maid just takes care of the house. But the uh, person who bought the house and is meant to be living in it is never there, is never at home. So she's got this aspiration to live in this beautiful mansion next to Regent's Park. But she also knows that the person who owns it isn't there. And that's, for me, a kind of sad image, I guess, of, of inequality through young people's eyes
1: yeah sorry i 'm just a little bit speechless because it 's such a, it's such a sad a sad uh, uh, story and I suppose that 's something that gets replayed uh, all around london i 've done that myself um, walking walking past apartments and houses and even mansions that are clearly uninhabited, vast amounts of space, beautiful interiors, but also sometimes neglected and almost semi abandoned because it 's just an kind of empty repository of capital just parking money and waiting for the investment to mature so there are lots of versions of zombie housing lots of versions of ghost mansions um, around London but I guess what they evoke is that sense of inaccessibility to housing and 12 do you have thoughts on what London needs to do to actually make more housing affordable to more people
0: to make it more affordable for people uh, I think it's quite simply, just building building more social housing. I appreciate the government's mantra is about aspirational housing. So, you know, with that, it's, it's, it's owning your property. So I think it's just a cultural issue as well, I think. I think it's trying to maybe reword or rephrase or the, the debate really about housing in, in the UK. So I think for most people now, even the middle classes, I think owning a property, especially in London, is a non-starter for many people now. So I feel... If it's the rented sector that will now pick up the burden from majority housing, then that needs to be more regulated. And I feel uh, as well as building social housing, you need to regulate and make rented property something that's actually desirable, not a place that people are just forced into living. So I have many properties. There's many properties that are just for fixed term for six months or 12 months. So that needs to be, you know, we need to have longer term tenures. The quality of housing as well needs to be dealt with more regulation on that, on that part. But I feel longer term, I feel social housing, because even for those private renting is still unaffordable. There's many, many people, many parts of our society who aren't able to afford private renting. So I think social housing is something that should be desired, should be a goal. There it should, it shouldn't be this attitude that you should be grateful for social housing. Having decent, good housing is, is, a, is a human right, which I just feel the government and the attitude today is, is well, you should be grateful for living in London, you know, um, and that's just sad, really, because I think London, the beauty of the city is that we have everyone living side by side, you know, different cultures, different social economic people, you know, and it's a beautiful thing, um, living side by side.
2: That's something that young people also really value. If you ask people, you know, what's the thing that you love the most about this area, almost guarantee that they will say it's to do with the diversity of the people who live there. They love the mix of people who live in their area. And I think it's time that we recognise the value that, that diversity can bring to a place having people from different ethnicities, different um, educational backgrounds—you know—with lots of different things to bring to an area. They have a right to be there, and I think that it's something that young people, especially, value and want to stay in London for. It's certainly why I like being in London. So. Unfortunately, housing inequality contributes to the homogenisation of of areas. We need to recognize that people have a right to be in their neighborhoods and to be able to stay if they want to.
1: So you've both advocated for the need for more social housing and also better quality housing. How do you respond to some of the recent proposals, conversations that are starting around London to turn unused office space in the city into apartments, to remake high streets and abandoned uh, commercial shopping spaces into apartments? Is that the right way, a, a good way to create more housing? Will that give us the kind of quality of housing we like?
2: Wasn't it Danny Dowling who said that there's actually enough housing in london or enough bedrooms in london for every single person in london to sleep separately in their own bedroom so this isn't really necessarily an issue of availability so much as an issue of accessibility i think you know we talked just now about zombie housing um there are just so many already existing places that are meant to be (laughs) used slept in uh lived in which aren't being used or slept in or lived in and i don't think that you know we should necessarily be converting all of our building stock into housing and certainly you know not raising a lot of these places to the ground like shopping centers and and so on to the ground to build more housing that people can't afford so i think that's the issue it's it's decoupling the kind of finance, I guess, um, your capacity to kind of bank money and save money and make money through housing and the right to have a place to live, a decent place to live.
1: So if we start to turn this back towards, uh, gentrification, I'm wondering how do we know if a neighborhood is gentrifying? What are the signs? What are the trends, um, Tool in, in East London, for example, um, what does gentrification look, feel, taste, and smell like? I guess in a word, I guess maybe
0: sp- uh, Spitzerfields, <laughs> uh, Hoxton. Uh, traditionally, I think they're probably the new, the, 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 the kind of like the, the term of gentrification in London. I was aware of. I mean, when I was a teenager um, in Brick Lane, there was a, um, a small little sort of Indian cafe I used to go to, um, and it closed down and turned into like a trendy, trendy restaurant. You see, um, sort of type of you know, more kind of different types of restaurants or, or cafes you wouldn't see before. Um, and you'll see, you know, maybe a, a new cinema, you know, for example, in, in, in Hackney, where I used to work. I uh, think the picture house opened about 10 years ago. Um, and also, as well as obviously traditionally you see new flats and signs for, for new, new flats and, and things like that. So, they're the kind of the, the obvious things you see. And then also then you'll see, then it's the, the makeup of, the, of the, the community. So you do see changes in terms of people you see, people that access the community. So yeah, they're the kind of the obvious things that I've seen.
2: To so I was right, obviously you see the changes in the shops. Actually, a funny one, that I, uh, example that I have is from Dalston. Um, so I live in Tottenham, but I go to Dalston quite a lot. And you walk down the A10 and you'll notice that quite a few organic grocery shops have popped up recently in the last few years. Um, and I think that reflects the kind of demographic change of the area. Um, more kind of young professionals have moved in. Uh, quite a few families have bought houses down the side streets. And a lot of the kind of Turkish run um, kind of convenience stores have changed And initially I I thought, well, you know, they can't afford the rent anymore um, and they've sold and they've gone elsewhere um, and an organic kind of bougie shop has taken its place. And then I found out that actually a lot of the Turkish shop owners had just rebranded. So they recognised that the change was happening in their area and they changed the shop front. They made... Um, the changes to their stock Um, you know they sell organic food now uh, they have a little coffee cart you know selling flat whites and um, yeah I just think that's such a neat little example of strategies that people have to
1: deal with or even make the most
2: of gentrification and
1: change that's really interesting because when you started talking about organic, uh, I was going to ask you, is organic a word we should be afraid of? Is, is that a, a kind of uh, a signal um, <laughs> of, of gentrification? But actually what you're describing is the appropriation of one of the uh, signals of gentrification by the local community in order to uh, enable that local community to endure and, and thrive. Yeah. So I suppose there are versions of hipsterfication that can be empowering or at least enable the local community to be part of the transformation of that neighborhood.
2: And it also depends on who the local community is and the resources they have at their disposal. You know, I think sometimes it's easy to think that everyone who had been living in an area previously has been kicked out but actually a lot of people um, for example might uh, be owners of you know large properties um, and they might be able to do quite well as a result of Uh, the demographic change, for example. I think it it really uh, sounds so obvious, but it really depends on people's kind of personal circumstances.
1: Mm -hmm. So sometimes what looks like gentrification may not entirely be gentrification.
2: I think it probably is gentrification. I think it just depends what you mean by gentrification. Um, But if we take gentrification to be signalled by certain images or words uh then i would say a lot of people can participate in that in different ways
0: again this goes back to who access them really um my experience is that you know as well as westford you do have the old shopping center still there which is on the other side of stratford and if you know if you know that area or will know the shopping uh, shopping mall but it's quite a nice um visual reminder if you like of kind of Newham or Stratford pre-Olympics or pre if you like, gentrification. and it's still I mean I mean before there was talk that it would close down this this old shopping mall but it's actually still thriving and I feel in my experience that the local community are using or accessing that the shopping mall more so than than Westfield because obviously Westfield it's all tied into you know high brands you know fast fashion with Olympic Park, so again, it's who's able to use and access it, and do local community
1: not do not feel it's still accessible to them. On a slightly lighter note, but nonetheless a very loaded note, I want to ask for your advice on donuts. And the reason I raise this is in my neighbourhood in Northwest London. I won't get more specific than that. On a, a Muse Street in the neighbourhood, a new bakery slash donut shop has opened, and it's one of those kind of classic hipster. Uh, food places where you have boutique, organic, you know, handcrafted, uh, glazed uh, donuts that cost five, six, seven pounds. And I've been walking past this shop for many days now, looking at these donuts through the window, and I feel very conflicted. What does it mean if I go in and eat that donut? Am I contributing to these inequalities and gaps um am i complicit in gentrification if i support this kind of uh, um food consumer experience or am i just a good urban citizen um shopping locally in my own neighborhood in other words with the moral dilemma of the donut would you advise that i do or do not eat it
2: that's such a great question i have i i have no idea <laughs> that is a major dilemma
0: I would say, uh, what did it replace the donut? If it replaced a um, community centre, then, <laughs> I mean, you could argue that you know, that's something, a donut, that is it's open to all. I mean, it depends on what, what, what it's priced at. Is it maybe £5 for one donut? I know, you know.
2: But also, it's, you know, I mean, oh, God, we could go round and round um, <laughs> with this. But I think, I, I, you know, I know what you're trying to say, like how much are we participating and contributing to the gentrification of our areas and I mean personally you know speaking myself as a white middle-class woman um living in Tottenham I'd say I'm absolutely a part of gentrification and you know the shops that I choose to go to reflect that I guess yeah
1: I think that is what I was trying to get at is the idea that we're all in different ways involved in and complicit with gentrification processes. And it's not just vulnerable populations being displaced and more affluent populations uh, coming in and having um, a more comfortable urban existence. There's lots of space in between and we connect in all different ways to the conditions, the spaces, the experiences and the smells and tastes of gentrification. And perhaps in that, that gives us some power, some agency. If we're all involved in gentrification, then maybe the things that we can do to contribute towards reducing the, the gaps that we've identified and creating this more inclusive future for London.
2: I mean there are there are definitely elements of personal choice here and personal culpability. Uh but like I say, you know, this it, it's a bit like the conversation about, you know, climate change and whether you should buy oat milk or cow's milk and, you know, should we all be vegans and so on? And and I think that there is an element of personal choice which is important, but we have to remember that the reason that we have government um structures in place is so that not every decision like falls squarely on the shoulders of the individual. You know, that if you do decide to eat that donut, then somehow that value that you've created by buying that donut gets captured and it gets put back into the local community in a fair way.
1: This helps me a great deal. And in case people are wondering, I will be going out after this recording and buying that donut and eating it but I will also be feeling slightly conflicted and guilty about it. I'm very jealous. So thank you both, Hannah Sender and tul Khan. It's been wonderful speaking with you, and thank you for all of your insights and sharing your experiences. And if you're interested in reading more about the issues we've been discussing today, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Aesthetics of Gentrification, published by Amsterdam University Press, or download the completely free open access version from the publisher's website. You have been listening to Future Cities, brought to you by UCL. To hear more podcasts from UCL, search for UCL Minds, wherever you download your podcasts. This podcast is an Ant Nell production. The producer and editor of this episode was Shivani Davey.